Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Jean Ma, who serves as a head of China research at the Institute of International Finance, where he maintains regular contact with Chinese financial institutions and policymakers. Prior to joining the IIF, Jean has also covered China's economy for the buy side, sell side, and at independent research houses such as Tudor Investments, Citic Securities, and ISI Group. Jean, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Before we dive into the focus of today's podcast, which is your outlook for the Chinese economy, I wanted to start with a bit of a more general question about the Institute of International Finance. So to get started, would you mind giving us a quick introduction to the history and perhaps the mission of the Institute of International Finance and the role it plays in the financial services industry today? Yeah, certainly. RRF is a trade association representing about 400 financial service firms in about 60 countries across the globe. It started in the 1980s to help solve the Latin America debt crisis by providing the macro research also serve as a bridge between the banks and the policymakers. The right now, besides our macro research, we also help uh, with the communication between member firms and also regulators. Also serve as a gathering place uh, for all types of financial institution service firms to learn from each other and help each other. Thank you for that introduction. And I guess now let's dive into the topic of the day. The sudden end of the zero COVID policy in China in late 2022 has dramatically altered the economic landscape across the country and prompted many forecasters to upgrade their baseline projections for this year, including us at Fitch Ratings. So maybe just to start, in your view, what stage in the post-pandemic reopening process does China's economy find itself at the present time? Yeah, it is indeed a quite amazing uh, process. We all know Beijing abandoned zero COVID policy in early December last year. And uh, now research is estimated that about 1 billion people got infected in three and four or five weeks at times. This is probably the largest mass infection in human history. At the beginning, people were very concerned about new variant and other consequences. But very luckily, so far, there's no new variant found. And also, in early January, Korean authorities said about 80% of arriving passengers from China test COVID positive because they do test arriving passengers at the airport. So in the three weeks ago, published another data said now said that this number that tested positive dropped to almost zero. So, which means the herd immunity was at last achieved. Uh, so, even China CDC two weeks ago announced uh, that the COVID pandemic was basically over. So, what a saga. So, now it's time for us to take a serious look into the implication of the reopening uh, to the Chinese economy and also to the global economy. So right now, the first uh, the data point we can collect is the consumption data during the Lunar New Year. So if you look at the number for travel, restaurant, uh, movie ticket sales, they basically recovered to about 80% of the pre-COVID level. There's still a gap. Uh, that is because people back in January, late January, early February, people have a little bit lingering fear uh, of COVID. So I think the, right now the economy is still recovering. 
still has not reached its potential, but at the same time, there are some secular headwinds ahead. And just to clarify, I mean, first and foremost, it's very interesting. I think after the China CDC stopped publishing the infection data, it's, it's interesting that people have been very clever and finding other ways to track the amount of infections. And this, I guess, cross-border data is very fascinating. And I guess that clearly shows the outbreak is over. Is, is that basically your understanding at this stage? Right. When we don't have the data coming out from Beijing, uh, we know the airports in Tokyo, Milan, and so uh, they do test the arriving passengers. So that's something data we can look into. So fortunately, none of those um, foreign authorities announced they found any new variant. Interesting. Okay. So I guess, uh, yeah, it's it's on to discussing the near-term prospects for the recovery. And and I know that you've participated in this debate about, about consumption. There's a, quite a lively debate in the markets right now about what the pattern of consumption in China is going to look like this year. And some are arguing that there's going to be a tremendous amount of quote unquote revenge consumption because of the uncharacteristically high surge in bank deposits that people have recorded and noted. Uh, what is your own view on the potential path for consumption in China this year? And are you of the view that there will indeed be a lot of revenge consumptioning in the horizon? First of all, it is pretty straightforward. There will be a strong rebound in consumption. But however, I think the, uh, this, uh, the consumption will be pretty narrow. And the spillover uh, in other countries probably is quite limited. First, so not all the lost consumption uh, can be regained, right? And you may want to have a revenge in terms of traveling, but you will not uh, have another meal to compensate for the meals lost last year. So that being said, we do expect robust consumption recovery uh, due to high income, better consumer confidence in a very low base a year ago, and also some excess household uh, saving deposits. So I just want to remind you last year, the growth rate household consumption was only uh, was a negative 0.2%, so basically zero. So that's why the base was, was very low. Also last year, people spent a uh, less money from the income, which means the consumption propensity was also very less, a higher propensity to save and the lower propensity to consume. I hope this thing will also reverse uh, in 2023. And on top of that, uh, we noticed Chinese household put about 18 trillion yuan into bank deposit last year. It's a huge amount of money. That's 80% higher than the year before, than in 2021. And uh, so that's the flow, the, the new addition uh, in last year. If you look at the stock, then the total stock of household deposits in banks uh, reached about 120 trillion at the end of last year. That's exactly the size of the GDP. Uh, that's about 85,000 uh, yuan per person. That's roughly about 200,000 yuan deposit per family. Of course, we know uh, these are money are concentrated in relative well-off families, a distribution not that even. But nonetheless, this amount of uh, deposits is about 20 trillion higher than the number predicted by the trend line. So this uh, we can call this uh, access uh, saving, access deposits. So this is the fuel for consumption in 2023. Of course, not all of those money will be spent, right? And we need to know where this money came from. 
And the Chinese household put more money into bank deposit because it didn't buy as many homes as uh, they used to. And also they pull money back on risky uh, financial assets, put them in the safe bank deposits uh, because they became a lot risk averse because they risked off uh, last year. So some of money will stay uh, as a saving, will not get spent, but nonetheless provide the resource for, for the households uh, for higher consumption spending uh, in 2023. I wanted to pivot a little bit to a bigger picture question, which is one of your latest research notes. And I noticed that you've adopted a somewhat guarded tone in writing about China's 2023 outlook, evident from the title, uh, which I quote, headwinds against a sharp growth rebound. So with that in mind, would you mind just walking us through your 2023 growth forecast and elaborate a little bit further on your rationale for being positive, but a little bit cautious uh, in that positivity? Right. And we do expect China to grow by 5.3 to 5.5 this year. Now, this sounds kind of paradoxical. It seems a pretty high number. That way you say uh, there are a lot of headwinds. Yes, uh, say five and a half uh, sounds a pretty high number, but remember, uh, the growth last year was only 3%. If it did a two-year average, so there's barely above 4% a year uh, on a two-year average term. So that means the growth rate is still below potential. So that's not a, a spectacular uh, growth rate. And also, we expect growth to be very backloaded this year. That means if you look at a sequential term, okay, not a year over year, but a sequential term, it will grow about 1% sequentially in the first and a half, and about one and a half in the second and a half. But of course, remember, uh, the second quarter last year was particularly bad due to Shanghai lockdown. So that was a, a quarter uh, in 2Q last year. So you may see a pretty high, so almost 7% a year-over-year growth in the second quarter. But don't be fooled by the year-over-year number, which is influenced by the low base effect. But if you look at a sequential growth profile, it will be very much backloaded this year. Now, the reason we also at the same time uh, want to uh, have a little bit cautious note is that we do see a lot of headwinds this year secular headwinds. The very first one is trade. We do see China's export growth deteriorating very quickly. The China export grew about 15% in the first half last year. That was negative 10% in December. Okay, that's how fast um, the export is falling. And also, you may see uh, some news reports showing the picture of uh, empty containers just piling up uh, in the Chinese ports. We're still trying to figure out what's happening, but very likely the slowdown uh, in the global economy, in the Eurozone and in the U.S. Um, will dampen the demand uh, for export from China. And also supply chains are going to disrupt it. And a lot of uh, the export manufacturing allocated from, uh, uh, relocated from China to other ASEAN countries. The U.S. technology sanction and special chip embargo may also hurt Chinese production and, and also the export of technology products. So for example, uh, the export of Huawei mobile phone, right, basically uh, just disappeared because cannot use the U.S. chips anymore. So these have a heavy um, imported components. So that's why we expect export to slow 
from seven last year to about zero, or maybe even slight negative growth uh, in 2023. It sounds like we're in a little bit of a catch-22 because on the one hand, I think people around the world are looking at China's reopening and are hoping that that's going to offset the, the downside pressures to the global economy. And on the other hand, we're looking at these weak trade figures coming out of China. What do you make of these two dynamics going on at the moment? Well, the economy is always intertwined, right? And uh, so they do depend on each other. When China can grow in, say, five and five and a half, in an accounting sense, it can make pretty large contribution to GDP growth because China GDP is about 18% of global GDP last year. Okay, so 18% of global GDP can grow at about five and a half. That's almost one percentage point contribution to global GDP. However, that's a contribution in accounting sense. Okay, it doesn't mean that it can pull up the growth rate for the rest of the world. And uh, for China to pull up the growth for the rest of the world, we need China to import more. Unfortunately, uh, at this moment, with the, the deglobalization force and also the nature of a chance recovery this time, um, we're afraid that such a spillover um, can be pretty limited um, or be much smaller than we saw in 2009 or 2010 when China's uh, $4 trillion stimulus uh, created the commodity super cycle. So those days are probably gone. Uh, we can go into a bit more details uh, later. Okay, sure. I guess one other key area of uncertainty which is being actively debated is the possibility of a earlier than expected turnaround in the property market this year. Uh, there's a lot of different polarized view on this at the moment, and I think the dynamics are changing quickly. But what is your take on this? I mean, will improved consumption patterns this year be sufficient to rebuild homebuyer confidence and ultimately boost the property market again? Yeah, that's a huge deal because uh, the real asset sector is directly a quarter of China GDP, indirect a lot more. And the China's housing market used to be incredibly resilient, able to bounce in back quickly uh, once the policy turned more supportive and the home price can bounce in higher than before every time. Again, this time, uh, probably different. Beijing policymakers uh, already made a U-turn uh, in the housing policy. The so-called three red lines uh, that limited uh, the developer leverage uh, has been abandoned or no longer a binding constraint anymore. The developer now offers so-called three arrows, uh, which is the financing through banking loans, uh, onshore bonds, and equities. So I think the developers can take a break, get a lifeline. But however, the home buyer confidence is still very weak. So for example, uh, the PBOC survey came out in the fourth quarter showing uh, the number of households plan to buy a home in the next quarter is still at a record low. So that is because the whole housing cycle probably peaked measured by different variables. For example, if you look at the marriage rate, the formation of household, uh, the housing inventory, they are all probably peaked. And also, if you look at the average living space of Chinese residents, they are above the global average. So that's why uh, when people do not expect ever grow higher uh, home price, they probably will be a lot more cautious uh, for home purchase. 
So it sounds like if I read between the lines, perhaps there is a debate about a, a near-term cyclical recovery, but sounds like the message that you've put out here is that you see longer term uh, a structural slowdown. There is. So on the bright side is that a financial crisis can be avoided because the developers are giving them a more fun, uh, credit line. But on the activity side, uh, I think the the housing market and construction probably in a doldrum for a while, so will not contribute to much economic activity. Now, one more data point. So Chinese developers were cutting their housing starts uh, by 40% in 2022 and 44% in the fourth quarter. Uh, so with, uh, say, the housing starts, uh, say, 40% lower than year before, the whole construction activity in 2023 will be very much muted. Also, land acquisition. Uh, it's also only half in volume than a year before. So both in terms of land uh, purchase and a new start, the activity level uh, is only about a half than a year ago. So in 2023, uh, the housing activity may stabilize. That means you, the growth rate move from a negative 40% to zero, but it's hardly uh, a stimulus. I guess somewhat unrelated question, but is a topic that's come up a lot of uh, very often with our conversations with investors is is the one of inflation. And many people do seem weary that we could see significant upward pressure in consumer prices this year, uh, partially because of the recovery and the pent up demand for consumers that we discussed earlier in this conversation. How do you see inflation dynamics at present in China? And do you think that some of these concerns about a spike in consumer prices are warranted? I think in the near term, we see a bit higher uh, consumer inflation because of a strong consumption. But if you look out a few more years, we still see a very strong deflationary forces in China. So yes, the CPI was only about 2.1% in 2022, and it may move toward 3% this year. That's it. Yes, consumption is strong, but at the same time, there are a lot of mitigating factors uh, to cap the consumer inflation in China. First, there is no visible constraint on the supply side. The capacity utilization of the manufacturing sector last year was only about 76%, uh, which is pretty low. The unemployment rate still at 55 in January, which means there's still some slacks uh, in the economy. And the global slowdown and decoupling also reduced the demand for consumer goods export from China. And also trade headwinds offset high domestic consumption demand. Moreover, even though there's a high correlation between China and the global PPI, uh, the correlation between China's CPI and the global CPI used to be pretty low. So that means China may not be that inflationary for the global economy this year. And also, we can, we can ask this question. So in the past two or three years, China's a very weak economy and the deflation uh, in China during COVID lockdown didn't help dampen the global inflation. And why should we expect uh, China reopening and it must be uh, inflationary uh, this time? Okay, so perhaps we get a bit more inflation, but still below 3% in your view for this year, which is, I guess, a pretty reasonable outcome. Yeah, also the spillover is, uh, is pretty limited. Okay. Well, I guess this transitions pretty neatly into the macro policy outlook. It sounds like inflation probably will not be 
a constraint on policymakers' uh, decisions in terms of uh, how they want to pursue different policy settings. So last year, monetary policy was uh, mildly supportive. I guess we had two small cuts to the required reserve ratios for banks and to the de facto policy interest rates. In our own view at Fitch, where we do sort of a consolidated fiscal balance, we thought that fiscal policy was quite accommodative, especially through the channeling of infrastructure investment through the local government special purpose bonds. How do you see the key priorities for Chinese policymakers this year, which is, I guess, as we've been discussing, a year of recovery? And how does that inform your outlook for monetary and fiscal policy settings? Yeah, this is a, a transition year for Beijing policymakers. Premiership, uh, bank and security regulators, and the like of the PBOC governorship will all be replaced uh, next month. And in mid-March, uh, in the People's Congress session, uh, we'll see the new lineup of the Beijing economic policymakers. So right now, uh, we're hearing very little of new policy ideas from the outgoing administration. And we'll hear a lot uh, in March and early April. So I expect monetary policy will shift towards more neutral in 2023 in view of a better growth and a higher uh, inflation. A more expansionary fiscal policy is still needed at this moment because the Chinese economy is still growing below potential. The unemployment rate is still elevated. But however, the local government already have it in debt. It's hard for local government to borrow further. So we should expect a central government to uh, do more heavy lifting. So we expect a fiscal deficit uh, will remain sizable in 2023, but maybe somewhat smaller than in the COVID years. So which means there's no strong monetary or fiscal stimulus this time. So that makes this recovery very different from the uh, global financial crisis uh, stimulus years. Uh, that also we expect spill over uh, from China to the global economy is very disappointing. So what do what Beijing policymakers do this time? We expect how policymakers this time will focus more to reboot the business confidence through selected deregulation and also uh, phasing out previous very draconian regulatory policies. Uh, so for example, they made an announcement that the shakeup of the uh, internet platform monopoly is over. Okay. Uh, even the DD, uh, the hating firm, now is allowed to promote the app and adding customers again. Uh, so that's probably is the policy focus in 2023. Interesting summary. So just to recap, monetary policy, you think, will pivot towards a, a neutral stance and then we'll still get some fiscal support, but not as much as last year. I guess I would be remiss not to ask you at least one question about capital outflows or capital flows in general, which I, I understand is one of the IIF's areas of expertise in the financial services industry. So against the backdrop of Sino-US geopolitical tensions and what you just alluded to, which was a bit of heightened business uncertainty in recent years, it appears that many global investors did cut their exposure to Chinese financial assets. And there was a lot of debate last year about whether this would become a permanent trend or for, was it just a purely uh, transitory trend? So I know you've looked into some details in the recent swings in China's cross-border portfolio flows, 
and I'd be curious to to hear what your views are. Um, are you seeing a recovery in portfolio inflows now that China's reopened the economy? And you know, what is your take on what transpired last year in terms of global investor positioning towards China? Yeah, China saw a wrecked outflow of a $93 billion uh, of bond investment by foreign investors uh, last year, uh, this largest ever. Uh, so it was a popular view that the Chinese asset became um, not investable due to China's close tie to Russia and the risk over Taiwan Strait. So uh, it's a tricky issue. So I took a closer look. The more detailed data may say otherwise. It's still the cyclical factors, such as Fed hike, China's own economic woes, and the policy blunder, and reversion of the U.S. and China uh, yield curve. Uh, these still play a much uh, bigger role than the geopolitical risk. Geopolitics still exist, but not a dominant factor. I'll give you a couple of reasons. If the capital outflow from China last year was indeed due to geopolitics, then we should see the outflow of both fixed income and equity money, right? Uh, the fact is that we saw an outflow of $93 billion in fixed income, but then a net inflow of $13 billion last year in equities. Okay. So, so obviously, uh, the portfolio outflow is mainly driven by fixed income, and not equity, equity was an, an inflow. And a second, so if it's only driven by geopolitics, then we should see the outflow by only foreign investors, not the Chinese only investors. But the truth is, uh, the domestic Chinese investor also allocated a record $120 billion abroad in foreign bonds. Because obviously, this was driven by higher foreign yield uh, last year. And also, if investors are really spooked by the risk over Taiwan Strait, okay, and then investors dumped assets from both the mainland assets, also Taiwan assets, right? But we didn't see the large sell of uh, Taiwan assets. So that means what made the global invest worried is still uh, the Chinese own economic woes and the policy mistakes uh, in the past two years. Oh, that's really interesting. The differentiation between equity and debt is a, a pretty compelling uh, piece of evidence that you've put together. Yeah. When we talk to uh, global investors, we do see people have a pretty different views. And uh, the government money, okay, be it a Canadian pension fund or Asian sovereign wealth fund, they became more cautious. Okay? There are later news stories saying that the Asian sovereign wealth funds are pulling out of private equity deals from China. But at the same time, we noticed the non-official affiliated money, uh, like a be it a loan only or hedge fund, uh, they are a lot more opportunistic and are income driven. Uh, they're ready to come back if they see a good data points. So one last question for you before we wrap up, and I guess it's uh, a continuation of, of this last one, which is broadly about geopolitics, because geopolitics, whether we like it or not, become an unavoidable part of uh, macroeconomic research and analysis in recent years, uh, particularly with the protracted tensions between China and the United States. So I'm curious, how do you see the potential for what the IMF has recently coined geoeconomic fragmentation? 
uh, particularly in, in technology, impacting China's long-term growth prospects? Yeah, unfortunately, it is happening as we're speaking. So it will have a very profound impact on China's economy and the global supply chain. A couple of things uh, we can foresee. For example, we do see a lot of manufacturing capacities moving from China to other countries by both foreign investors and China's own companies. They're moving factory not only to Vietnam, but also in Mexico. We see a very sharp rise in the FDI uh, from China into Mexico to capture the opportunity provided by USMAC to avoid the tariff imposed the export from China. Right now, China has become the number three provider of imports to the United States, behind North America and behind EU. So China is no longer the large export to the US anymore. So this has changed uh, quite rapidly. At the same time, China's export to ASEAN is picking up very rapidly because China needs to export material component parts to ASEAN. So China used to be the final assembly line uh, for the global consumer for almost two decades. So that was changing. So instead of being in the final assembly line, China is becoming a supplier of parts components for other countries to assemble uh, the consumer goods uh, for the rest of the world. So that is happening. Uh, as we speak. So that will also change, I think, the uh, China domestic industrial structure over time. So I think it's a, we all need to pay very close attention to how China react to the U.S. CHIPS Act uh, and also the Inflation Reduction Act. We know China's industrial policy has a mixed record. This is very successful in green technology but failed uh, almost completely uh, in semiconductor sector. So right now, the research uh, we found is that coming out of China is that in order to fight back the chip embargo, uh, China have to build up the whole supply chain in the semiconductor industry. Uh, then it means from um, silicon chips to the lithographic machines to the testing facilities, even though China is not able to compete at a very high end uh, in the chip sector, China can still make the low to medium end uh, chips. It is the low, medium end chips make most of the money. Okay, the chip makers have to make money from the mass market product to finance the R&D of the cutting edge chips. Uh, well, if China can eat into the profit of those uh, sectors, it will have a huge impact on the global uh, chip industry. So a lot of things will happen. So uh, we have, have to keep a very close eye on those developments. Well, Gene, thank you very much for your insights today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.